in case you haven't noticed, there are some indisputable parallels between the context of the book of First and Second Samuel and our own, which as we go through it, I'm sure that many of these parallels, although not the exact same situations, of course, will hit even harder. But God, by using his own word as his spirit applies it to us, gives us great encouragement for the times in which we live. And today's passage in 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, is one of those places. When I read it in just a minute, if you haven't looked at it ahead of time, you may wonder, well, how is that encouraging? Well, it is. And we will see why. First and second Samuel are just full of contrast. And there is no better way to make a point than by using contrast. First Samuel begins with the contrast between the two wives of Elkanah, Hannah and Penina. Hannah is obviously a humble believer in God while Penina is arrogant and hostile. Now, in chapter 2, we see the great disparity between Hannah's son, Samuel, and the priest, Eli's sons. Samuel ministered before the Lord and grew in favor with the Lord and also with man, we read. While Eli... The priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are described as worthless and wicked. Why all the contrast? Well, what better way to show us not only that God is at work to accomplish his purposes, but also to remind us that God is at work to accomplish his purposes even when Circumstances and events seem to scream exactly the opposite message. And that's the point. That's what's encouraging. In other words, this is God's way of getting us to understand that he is always at work. And always there. And always with his people, no matter what it may seem like to us. If you are able, please stand as I read this very strange and seemingly dark passage beginning at 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 through 36 from the English Standard Version. See if you can pick out the points of encouragement. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord, 
The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman, for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Now, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of the Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering from my people Israel? Therefore... The Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar 
shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seat it. It's kind of hard to miss all the contrast, isn't it? What's the main point of the contrast again? Samuel is mentioned several times here, even if briefly, throughout this account about the wickedness of Eli's sons, Hophni. And Phineas. The effect is that we see God working behind the scenes. All this evil is going on in his tabernacle, yet quietly, quietly behind the scenes, God is already preparing for new godly leadership down the line. It's like God was saying, don't Forget Samuel. I'm raising him up now to prepare for my work down the line in the continued unfolding of my plan of redemption through a future Messiah. This is so often the way God works. And most of the time we argue with it. When it seems the darkest... God is still working in the middle of the darkness to accomplish his purposes for his people. Dale Ralph Davis uses a great illustration of this principle given in a true story from decades ago in a ministry journal. In a B-17 bombing run over a German city during World War II, Nazi aircraft flak hit the gas tanks of one of the bombers. No explosion. The morning after the raid, the pilot went down to ask the crew chief for the shell that had hit the gas tank. He wanted a souvenir. The crew chief indicated there were 11 unexploded shells in the gas tank. The shells had been sent to the armorers to be diffused. Then intelligence had picked them up. The armorers had found that the shells contained no explosive charge. They were empty. All but one. It contained a rolled up note written in Czech. Finally, the intelligence found someone on the base who could read Czech. C-Z-E-C-K-H. Translation. Of the note. This is all we can do for you now. 
So there were these Czechs who were compelled to work in a, musician, in a munitions plant for the Nazi war effort. They didn't try to blow up the plant or assassinate Hitler. They simply didn't put charges in some of the shells. It was all very quiet and unnoticed, but it did work salvation all the same. Such is frequently God's way for his people. Not all his work is noisy or dramatic. We may be tempted to conclude that he's abandoned us because we haven't ears to hear the silent manner of much of God's work. This is often God's way in redemptive history, and we should mark it. We will not become too discouraged over Hophni and Phinehas so long as we see little Samuel walking around Shiloh. Sermon's over. That's the main point. Well, let's first address the mess and the darkness that God worked in. The mess that God was working quietly in and raising up Samuel was not the mess of all the pagan nations around God's people. Instead, the mess was actually the priest of Israel at the tabernacle of Shiloh, the sons of Eli. First, we see in verses 12 through 17 that Hophni and Phinehas, quote, treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, unquote. How? What were they doing? The law of Moses made provision for the priests serving in the tabernacle to receive their food from the sacrifices that were offered there. Yes, he did. Ample provision. There were certain portions for the priests depending on the animal. We see that in Leviticus 7 and Deuteronomy 18. Eli's sons instituted their own system, however, which amounted to randomly skewering extra meat from the family pots. Then they expanded their thievery by forcefully demanding even the fat portions, which were supposed to be reserved and burned for the Lord. So Eli's sons demonstrated both a sacrilegious attitude towards the offering and actually stole from the portions allotted to the Lord and from the portions allotted for the people offering the sacrifice. Now let that sink in a minute. This is, is the sacrificial worship of the people going to the tabernacle in Shiloh, usually only once or a couple of times a year. And what did they find there? Thieves. And everybody knew it. And then, right in the middle of this mess, between the accounts in our text of Eli's son's desecration of the offerings, and then what comes next, which is their own sexual immorality, at the tabernacle, we see right in the middle of those two accounts, this account with Samuel and Hannah in verses 18 through 21. 
really short, but it's there. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Okay, moms. You have given your child, just recently weaned when all this began, to the Lord to live at the tabernacle under Eli. And you knew what his sons were like then. And you still trusted the Lord enough to leave that boy there in God's care. That should blow all of our minds right there. And look what God did with this kid. Samuel was ministering before the Lord even as a little boy. And we know that how? Because it says so. And because of what we see going on here. Every year, Hannah brings Samuel a little robe. And this was worn over the linen ephod. The ephod was associated with priestly service. Eli would bless her and Elkanah, her husband, asking the Lord for more children for them. And we find out then that Hannah has five more children after Samuel. Three sons, three more sons, and two daughters. And then we read at the end of this little passage, And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. What a contrast to Eli's sons. You can't get a bigger contrast between sons. And then secondly, the second mess that we've just mentioned, that we read, is in verse 22, that Eli's sons had sexual relations with the women who kept up the worship center. Instead of treating these women who tended the holy tabernacle with the utmost purity, they were desecrating the place where Israelites entered into God's holy presence. No wonder Eli's sons are introduced to us in verse 12 as worthless men who did not know the Lord. Worthless men means they had no regard for the Lord. And the Hebrew here uses as a phrase that actually means that they are agents of destruction. They did not know the Lord means exactly what you think it means. These men were unconverted, spiritually devoid of God's saving grace, caring nothing for the demands of God's holiness, even though there was obvious access to and knowledge of God's law and provision. Talk about clergy. Yet in the middle of this destructive leadership and the sacrilegious atmosphere, we hear the text reminding us, can you hear it? Don't forget Samuel. Do you see how he's serving? But Eli's sons are not the only ones pointed to as messes, are they? Oh, and did we mention that the whole nation knew 
what Hophni and Phinehas were doing? In verses 23 through 25, we see Eli rebuking his sons for their evil behavior. Evil behavior that all of Israel knew about. And we read their response in verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. But in verses 27 through 36, we see a prophet of God. We don't know who this prophet is. His name is not given. Who approaches Eli and addresses him about God's coming judgment upon his household. In verse 29, we find out the reason for this judgment. Thus the Lord has said. So the prophet is delivering the words of God. Why then do you, Eli, scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. In other words, Eli, even though he did rebuke them verbally for their very great sin, did not take any action to remove Hophni and Phinehas from their priestly office, which was his prerogative. How would we say that today? There was no church discipline. One more thing about these sons and why they didn't listen. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Here in verse 25. For it was the will of God to put them to death. Now hang on. The word for here is more correctly translated. It can be, and it is in other places, but the meaning here would be better because what he's saying is because. They would not listen because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Whoa. In other words, Hophni and Phinehas' resistance to listening was the result of God's judgment. It wasn't the cause of God's judgment. How can that be, you ask? For their persisting rebellion, God decided to put them to death So the text teaches that someone can remain so firm in their rebellion that God may confirm them in it. So much so that they will remain utterly deaf to and unmoved by any warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance. In case you're wondering, this is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 1, 
where we see God's wrath being revealed. It's present tense there. Not the end of days. Not at the seat of judgment at death or right before. It's being revealed when he gives people over to sin, to live in whatever sinful lifestyle they want to live and therefore do whatever they want to do. They are, in one sense, building up for future judgment, but what Paul is saying and what we see here is that actually God giving them over to do what they want to do in this extreme way, where they are totally given to live in rebellion to God, that in itself is judgment. It's God's judgment. Which is why many are correct in saying that this country we live in is already under God's judgment. That doesn't mean that it's pow, it's done and it's over. It means that God's processes are beyond us. I know this takes some chewing on, but we've got to be careful how we respond to such passages. I'm sure we all realize that, but let me give you two extreme ways that are wrong in how we respond to this and appeal for another way to think about it. We've got to be careful how we respond to this because we can either accuse God of being deficient in mercy. In other words, we can become a prosecutor and try to take God to court as it is and judge him for what he has decided to do. I'm sure you realize we have no place in doing that at all. If there's anybody or anything deficient in this whole thinking process, it's us. It's not God. Or the other extreme is just to be too intellectually curious about the whole way this works, which dilutes its seriousness. In other words, this would be wanting to figure out the precise point at which sin's progress keeps away repentance and then write a book about it and start a seminar about it and make a lot of money about it. But you don't have to go that far. Just the curious nature that that a lot of us have where we want to know exactly when that is so that we can understand it and we demand to understand it to that degree. Does that hit anybody in here? Yeah, Okay, we, we like charts, and we want to we wanna know exactly where that, that person's going to go, where God knows they're never going to repent again, cause, and so he's given them over completely, and so what, where is that, and how serious does it have to be? Because we all know that God can work in anybody's heart. Okay, do you, do you see why that could be dangerous? So, the appeal is, and, and I found this with 
bunches of people uh, this appeal because when you read tons of commentaries, you realize that some of these guys have brains that, that go places that you, you don't even dream about because you're not anywhere close to even knowing enough to dream about it. You, you get what I'm saying? And so that's how their minds work. And they have recognized in themselves this, uh, this is one of those things that we kind of go, whoa, 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 whoa. Because that's what they want to do. They want to and it, get it right there. Or they want to take God to task. And there's plenty of those books in every bookstore in America. God can't be this because he let this. And you go on and on there, okay? So our place is not really to question or to fully comprehend such a declaration to the degree that we want to, but rather to tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. You see how carefully that was worded? but rather to tremble before God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. Most of you have probably read Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, I sure hope you do. There's a character in Pilgrim's Progress who Bunyan used to illustrate this very point because it's not just in the Old Testament, as I mentioned it's in Romans 1, and I don't know whether you noticed this or not, but it's in a couple places in Hebrews. Really close. His name was Backslider. And this character was locked in an iron cage, and he was unable to repent. And that's how Bunyan illustrated it. Leaving this and going on. I hope you can. The Lord's rejection of Eli's household is in this last big section here in this chapter. And we can look at this and make it easier to understand by looking at how it's divided up because it's very clear how it's divided up. This is all what the Lord has said through the prophet to Eli. And the first thing we see in verses 27 through 28 may seem strange, but it's not. What's happening here is the prophet gives a, a really short story of God's previous unmerited favor towards this family. In other words, when he shows how gracious God has been to choose this family to be the people who uh, minister the sacrifices in his holy tabernacle. He's conjuring up what a privilege and how graceful that was because nobody merited that job. He chose these people to have this responsibility, which is really the greatest privilege among all the people in Israel. That's what he's saying here at the beginning. And then when he gives the charge of what the sin is, what happens? Because of the great privilege, the charge seems even more horrible than it is in reality. Does that make sense? It's like when you remember 
good times, and now you're going through this time, and it's, whoa, so far apart. That's the point. This is another huge contrast that God is drawing to Eli through the prophet. So he just says that God has granted the office of priesthood to the house of your father. And who was that first? And he mentions Egypt. That would be Aaron. Priesthood included, and then he lists all these things. Serving at the altar, the burning of the incense, wearing of the ephod and enjoying the food offerings. All these were the most incredible and important privileges in serving in all of Israel. And then he hits him in verse 29. He gives the reason for his coming judgment, which is Eli's sin, his present tense sin regarding his sons. Why, he says, why, Eli, in light of all these privileges and gifts, do you, and the word scorn there is literally kick, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I ordained to point to the ultimate means of atoning for sin? Do you see why this is important? This isn't just bringing some meat from your worst animal and throwing it on a fire, going, I did my thing, now God bless me. These sacrifices pointed to whom? It pointed to the fact that you and I need someone to die in our place because there is no way that our sin is going to be covered by the blood of bulls and goats. But it needs to be covered, which means what? We are sinful. And we will not stand before God unless our sin is covered. So this whole sacrificial system is pointing to the one who will come and offer himself on the cross. It's his blood that washes us clean. It's his blood that is pointed to by this sacrificial system. And these two sons of Eli are making a complete mockery of it. They are desecrating it. They are not treating it worthily. So it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And because Eli did not remove these men from their office, the prophet gives God's words. You kick at my sacrifices so that you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the finest cuts of every offering of Israel, my people. Eli allowed his wicked sons to continue in their priestly office. Okay, parents, listen. Eli may not have been able to keep his sons from practicing their immorality, but he could have prevented them from doing it as priests. That's the issue. How many movies, books, stories, songs have been written about parents who know their children have been involved in wickedness and they allow it? They don't even rebuke them verbally, much less if they have the ability to or they have the authority to remove them from whatever situation. 
This was threatening to destroy the nation. These were the people who were the examples. This would naturally just put off anybody from going, what do we need to go there for? This is a joke. In fact, it's not a joke. It's horrid. I want to throw up when I think about the priests ministering these sacrifices and offering their prayers. And Eli could have easily removed them from their office, but what? He honored his sons above the Lord. And then... In verses 30 through 36, the prophet gives details of the coming judgment, the decimation of Eli's family line. And we're going to see how this is carried out uh, through the rest of Samuel, uh, in part at least, but, I mean, we we get close. And we know this is serious because after all this, the first word in verse 30 is what? Therefore. The Lord of Israel declares, the priesthood would continue, but not through Eli's part of the line. The downfall of Eli's house begins with the death of his sons, which we're going to see in chapter 4. And they do die on the same day. Eli finds out, and he literally falls over goes crunch and he dies also in chapter 4 it continues then with Saul the first king who massacres all the priests of Nob in chapter 22 we'll get there and it culminates in Solomon's removal of Abiathar from the priesthood in 1 Kings chapter 2 He was the last one, the one that was left to weep. Eli will not live to experience most of his punishment, but the death of both Hophni and Phinehas on the same day are what? They will be a sign of the truth of this prophecy. He will know for sure. I mean, like he didn't know when he heard it from the prophet, but he will know. And that gives you some thought about what happened to him right after he heard that his sons had been killed. Now, we've got to say this too, and this, is, this, this sermon is full of things that we need to be careful about because the text is. Uh, here, here goes kind of the next thing. Is there a warning here? Not just to parents about not dealing with their children's sin when they have a chance to in some way and then trusting God with it because there there is that leaving part where, hey, they're on their own. But but isn't there something else here too? We don't want to deal with this and we don't want to say it, but we've got to. Is there a warning here to all of us who tend to make being nice to people the most important of all priorities in life? This is not an excuse for those of us who have quick tempers and even quicker mouths 
that gives us license to do what we want to do. That's not how to take this at all. But in this text, can you end up in serious sin by thinking that way? By not knowing what God wants you to do or say? Does niceness really equate with biblical love? In other words, how easy is it to drift into ignoring God's law and despising God's holiness when our ultimate goal is never to offend anyone? Do you you catch? I'm trying to hit both sides here so that we, we don't have a license to be gruff and be a jerk and be just horribly foul mouthed and intense and mean. None of that is being talked about here. What we're talking about is people who are so afraid of what other people will think that they never are free or empowered to open their mouth and proclaim the gospel or offer a word of care or a warning or do what's right because that's what it's going to come down to. The pressure has not been on us, but the pressure is around the corner. And in grace, we're going to have to be ready to stand up and do what's right. And if we're asked, we're going to have to answer. And remember what Jesus said about families. Please note that by the prophet coming to Eli, God in his word actually mercifully, mercifully kind of invaded this scene. And we're going, what do you mean mercifully? Look what's going on here. Look what happened. Judgment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? On Eli's family. By God announcing his judgment upon sin and exposing this sin, didn't he really protect his people from being completely overcome by this evil? Yes, he did. One commentator remarks that if the true church is to be preserved, her false servants must be removed. Hence, this is the merciful meddling of God's word. That's what he called it. Merciful meddling of God's word. Where we have the voice and or the authority to do so. This chapter ends with a strong reminder that God's purposes will be realized. That rebellion does not send the Lord into a state of helpless hand-wringing and frustration. He is not like us. God will rule his people. If not through particular leaders, then apart from them and in spite of them, he will rule. Later, Hophni and Phinehas will be removed. 
Verse 35, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And, of course, there's a huge debate that you can spend years trying to figure out about who this faithful priest is. Some think it's Samuel, but there's good reason to think, no, 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 no. He's, he's uh, fulfilling another role. Maybe it's somebody down the line, which would be typical of Old Testament prophecy, but not that far down the line. Most think he would be Zadok, who was elevated to high priest by Solomon when Abiathar, remember him, was removed. They were kind of co-high priest, but when Abiathar was removed, who was Eli's last priestly descendant, then Zadok was high priest. That's who most think this is immediately referring to. So despite the debate about who the faithful priest is, the main point is a lot more important to us, and that is that God's people may suffer from arrogant, immoral, unrepentant priests, but the Lord will judge them and will raise up proper leadership for his flock. It just may not be in the timing that we desire. But in this day, it may be we are placed somewhere where we do have a voice to do this correctly, or maybe we have the responsibility to. You know, perhaps this is why judgment must begin at the household of God. 1 Peter, again, 4, verse 17. Our God is tenacious in completing what he starts in and through his people. And no enemy can thwart him. So the question is, are you looking for and trusting in the fact that God is even now, with the discouragements that we have heard and faced and will face more of as the days go on in the society we live in. Are we looking for and trusting in the fact that God is even now quietly working behind the scenes in the middle of the growing darkness and the mess? Are you? Am I? Well, I know this. I know God is raising up leaders right now that are already there as far as their love and stand on the word of God. And that's whose hands and who that, that, that will hold us firm and lead us, lead you in the future. And the young ones in here, there will be people that God raises up and that we can hope on. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you again for this book in your word, for how you worked, for how you raised up Samuel. All those circumstances brought the attention to you and how great you are and what your purposes are. And we pray that you'd clear away the fog enough from us in these dark times and hard times that we face even even with 
all we have here still in this country that we rejoice in and see as blessings from you. Um, but we ask that you'd help us see clearly and use your word and your spirit in us to do that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Let's just sum it up this way. Grace and peace be to you all. Hope to see you tonight. You're dismissed.